Well, good morning, everyone. All the men who are left in the room, you know what it means about us. <laughs> it means we are the physical specimens which were not able to do the hike along the Tsitsi Kama. So it's embarrassing that I should be the one actually preaching to you this morning. <clears throat> but um, I don't know if Nkulu knows that I'm going to be preaching on Isaiah chapter 9. Did you know that this morning? Okay, well, he beat quoted the scripture that I'm preaching on this morning, which I thought was wonderful. And uh, in fact, uh, he preached the first five minutes of my sermon, which was also <laughs> quite fantastic. <laughs> For those of you who, who don't know me, my name is Steve Johnston. Um, and if you are visiting Church on Main for the first time, I want to especially uh, extend a, a warm word of welcome to you. So glad you've come to meet with us this morning. We trust that you will not only meet with us, but that you'll meet with Jesus Christ, whom we say is alive, and that you'll meet with him through his word today. Uh, so we, we've got a, a big week coming up in South African history. The elections are coming up, and um, I think it's fitting that this morning I should speak about another kingdom, that kingdom which Nkulu was referring to. I want to talk to you this morning about an eternal kingdom uh, whose king is Jesus Christ. And... Jesus said that this kingdom of his is not of this world. And we're going to turn to a scripture in Isaiah chapter uh, 8 and 9 to, to uh, speak about this kingdom this morning. But just to put you in context, if you are visiting, what we are currently doing is we're going through a seven-week series looking at Jesus in the Old Testament and how Christ was clearly predicted through prophecy, through types and shadows, through events in the Old Testament, all of which pointed to the coming of the Messiah. So when the Jews of the first century met Jesus as he entered the ministry, they already had a couple of thousand years worth of preparation. They were expecting him. And we're going to look at just one such of those prophecies in the book of Isaiah this morning. So Isaiah lived around 700 years before the birth of Christ. And um, he was living in, in quite contentious days. There was a lot happening in the nation of Israel and Judah, the southern kingdom in his time. And before we get into Isaiah chapter 8 and 9, I do need to give you some historical background as to what was happening in the world at the time and what was about to happen in the days of Isaiah, which he was predicting. Um, I initially wanted to go straight to Isaiah chapter 9, I think it's verses 6 and 7 that talk about the son who is given. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and a government will be upon his shoulders. That verse that Nkulu read to us this morning. I wanted to go straight there, in fact, um, in the sermon this morning. But as I began my preparation, I saw quite clearly, you can't just jump straight into Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. You have to catch the context of what Isaiah has been predicting in the previous verses. And in fact, I, I went back a few verses and that didn't quite do it. And I went back a few verses, that didn't do it either. And I had to keep going until I got back to the very beginning of Isaiah chapter 8. And that's kind of where we're going to begin this morning. But before we even do that, I do need to give you this quick historical survey. After the reign of Solomon, David's son, the, the, the nation of Israel, which was at its the height of its power in Solomon's times, um, in the life of his son Rehoboam, the, the nation was split in two. So there was a massive civil war. 
And the split divided the nation into two pieces. The northern kingdom, which became known as the kingdom of Israel. And that was ten of the twelve tribes of Israel went split off into the north. And then the southern kingdom, which became known as Judah. Uh, Of course, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel was Samaria. And the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah was Jerusalem. So what happened to the northern kingdom of Israel? Well, um, they descended into idolatry. They turned their backs on God. There was never a righteous king in all of the generations of Israel's history. And uh, after some initial uh, uh, conquests by the Assyrian king, uh, Tiglath-Pileser, otherwise known as Pul, P-U-L in, in Scripture calls him that sometimes, he conquered Israel a number of times in the early days, um, and then eventually in 722 BC, um, the, the northern kingdom was entirely conquered by the Assyrian Empire and taken into captivity. That was under another Assyrian king named Shalmaneser. So in the early days, there, there's this Assyrian king, Tiglath-Pileser, who is marching from the capital of Assyria. Now don't get confused between Assyria and Syria. They were two separate kingdoms. Who knows, who, what was the capital of Assyria? Anybody know? Nineveh. So, so it, this, these are the people that Jonah was, was prophesying to, the Assyrians. Well, they were marching south from Nineveh. Uh, they marched through Damascus, which was the, the capital of Syria, conquered them. They marched then south into the, the, the land of the northern land, the kingdom of Israel. And whenever they marched through to Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom, they always marched through a region of this northern kingdom of Israel called uh, Galilee or the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, two of the tribes of the, the ten tribes. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali. And so the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali in the region of Galilee were constantly, and they were like on the main road for any army coming in to, to attack Samaria. So they were constantly being harassed by armies coming through and then armies retreating back to where they came from. So there are these initial conquests which take place in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali as the army of the Assyrians marches down and in and out and Tiglath-Pileser is causing havoc. Now remember that, some initial uh, conflict that they experienced. But then later on, things actually just went from bad to worse for the land of Zebulun and Naphtali Because in 722, Shalmaneser, the Assyrian king, came and totally destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. And he took them all captive. And in fact, they were never to return. So there was a then final cataclysmic defeat of the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC, including for the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. That's going to become important when we get to Isaiah chapter 8 and 9. So that's um, what happened to the northern kingdom. Uh, those ten tribes that were taken captive eventually by Shalmaneser, they were never ever returned to their land. There was never an official edict by a king granting them permission to return to Samaria and rebuild their, their city and their kingdom. Never. What happened to the Assyrians was they were eventually conquered by the Babylonians, and then the Babylonians after a period of time were conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire. None of those empires and the kings that ruled them ever granted the northern kingdom 
a right to go back to Samaria. Okay, that's the northern kingdom. What happened to the southern kingdom of Judah? Well, for the most part, they also turned their backs on God. And in about 700 BC, this is only 20 years after Shalmaneser has taken the northern kingdom captivity. Only 20 years later, that same Assyrian army continued to march south and they began conquering the towns and villages of uh, the, the kingdom of Judah. And in fact, they laid siege to Jerusalem itself in around 700 AD. So this Assyrian army, and this time now it's under a new king, Shalmaneser had passed away, and it's now under a king called Sennacherib. So Sennacherib Commanding the Assyrian army marches all the way south. They've, co- they've conquered Syria, they've conquered Israel, and now they march into Judah, and they conquer all the towns and villages, and they get to Jerusalem itself and lay siege to Jerusalem. Now the king of Jerusalem at that point in history was a righteous man. His name was uh, Hezekiah. Uh, Hezekiah loved the Lord, and when Sennacherib and his army were encamped against Jerusalem, they sent a letter, a threatening letter to King Hezekiah. And uh, Hezekiah, he took this letter. He went into the temple and he laid the letter, the Bible says, before the Lord. And he cried out to God. He said, God, we don't know what to do, but you are our God and you can deliver us. And in a single night... Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord, went into the, the, the camp of the Assyrians and he killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. When people blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ, they have no idea who they are insulting. So there was this great deliverance, this miraculous deliverance of of the city of Jerusalem when Sennacherib was surrounding it. And as it turns out, we're going to see that event, that miraculous deliverance, it makes its appearance in Isaiah chapters 8 and 9 that we're going to look at this morning. So you need to understand that piece of history as well. Uh, so everything that I've said to you so far, this, um, the, the, the initial sort of sub-conquests of Israel and Zebulun and Ephli constantly being troubled, and then a greater conquest later under Shalmaneser when they're taken captive. Both of those events for Zebulun and Ephli appear in Isaiah's prophecy, and now this event where the Assyrian army gets to Jerusalem and then miraculously God intervenes. That also appears in this prophecy. So... Uh, despite, unfortunately, the story continues for the southern kingdom of Judah, despite the, the, uh, the miraculous deliverance and the sort of bright spot, this moment of revival in the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, after Hezekiah passed away, even more wicked kings of Judah began to reign. And with the exception of Hezekiah's great-grandson, Josiah, who was also a righteous man, all the rest of the kings of Judah were wicked. And in the end, God also delivered the southern kingdom of Judah over to its enemies. In this case, it was the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar who had now conquered the Assyrian Empire. And so Nebuchadnezzar came in, he laid siege to Jerusalem, he burned the city to the ground, he destroyed the temple, and he took the entire nation of Judah captive to Babylon. 
So both the northern and the southern kingdoms, Israel and Judah, were carried into captivity because they turned their backs on God. However, and this marks a great change, a great discontinuity between what happened to Israel and what happened to Judah. Before, just before Judah was carried away captive to Babylon, one of the prophets of Judah, his name was Jeremiah, he predicted that after 70 years in captivity in Babylon, God would bring his people back to Jerusalem. And that, of course, was a promise which was fulfilled when a royal edict was passed by the Persian king because the Medo-Persian Empire had now conquered the Babylonians. And then this Medo-Persian king named Cyrus issued a royal edict that the people of Judah should be able to return to their land. And in fact, he funded the trip and that they should rebuild the temple. Now, why is that? Well, just as an aside, in another prophecy of Isaiah himself, this is prophesying 200 years before any of this happened. Isaiah predicted that a king named Cyrus would, would cause the people to return and rebuild the temple. I mean, can you imagine being Cyrus, you've just come to the throne of the Medo-Persian Empire, and some little Jewish servant comes up to you with his Bible and says, Great king, I want to show you something. 200 years ago, one of our prophets named you and said that you would cause us to return to Jerusalem and build a kingdom. And uh, Cyrus got a hopping, a skipping, and a jumping, and he did exactly that. So, I want you to note this, because this is going to be important as we head into Isaiah 8 and 9. God brought back the southern kingdom of Judah to Jerusalem. He brought them back from captivity, but he never did that for the ten northern tribes of Israel. Now, a very important question has to be asked at that point. Why? Why on earth did God favor the southern kingdom of Judah? Why did he bring them back to Jerusalem and he never brought the northern kingdoms back to Samaria? And it's, because one of the things you'd be tempted to think is that maybe the people of Judah were better than the people of Israel. That somehow they were more righteous. Well, the Bible says the opposite, in fact. The, the prophet Ezekiel said that Jerusalem was more wicked than her sister Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom. They were more wicked than the northern people. And yet God brought them back and did not bring back the northern kingdom. So why did God bring Judah back to Jer Jerusalem. Now, to understand that, we have to understand something else from the history of Israel. We have to understand God's covenant with a man named David. About 400 years before this, before the captivity of Judah to Babylon, 400 years before that, God had made a covenant with David, the king of Israel. I say Israel because at that time it was, it was before the split of the kingdom. So God made a covenant with David. What is a covenant? A covenant, quite simply, is a relationship that God establishes with a person or a nation. A relationship which he establishes and guarantees by his word. 
In other words, it's a relationship that God establishes with a group of people, and He guarantees that relationship by making promises to them. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we read in terms of God's covenant with David that God promised David that he and his descendants would rule as kings over God's people and that this kingdom over which David's descendants would be kings would be an everlasting kingdom. You think about that. God promised David... I will sustain this kingdom of my people forever, and your sons will be kings over this kingdom for eternity. You know, the longest reigning uh, dynasties in history, I think it's the Bulgarian dynasty, it's about 2,700 years. The the longest currently reigning dynasty uh, in the world is the Japanese royal family. They've been uh, ruling Japan for about, I think it's 2,660 years at this point. You think, well, that's quite impressive for a family to rule a nation for for that long. Well, compare that to God's promise to David. God promised David that this kingdom of God's people, over which David and his sons would always be king, would be an everlasting kingdom. We're not talking 2,660 years here. We're talking billions and billions and billions and billions of years without end. And what a staggering promise. How can that be? Well, we will see how that can be. So in... Earlier, we, I'll just orientate yourself. I've asked the question, why did God bring back the southern people of Judah to Jerusalem from their captivity, but He never did that for the northern kingdom? Why is it? And the answer is, because God had made covenantal promises to David. And God always keeps his promises. That's why. Because God is faithful. In Isaiah chapter 8, we're going um, to see now all of this history that I've recounted for you in the last 15, 20 minutes. We're going to see it all predicted in advance by Isaiah. None of that has, has happened yet. And he's going to predict it all in these two chapters. Um, I'm not going to go through the first seven verses with you, but I'm I'm going to summarize what that first seven verses predicts. In those first verses, Isaiah predicts that the Assyrians under Shalmaneser will invade and conquer first the land of Syria. They will take Damascus, the Syrian capital. They will then keep marching south, and they will then conquer Israel with its capital, Samaria. That, of course, was fulfilled in 722 BC. And Isaiah then also predicts that the Assyrian army, having conquered both Syria and Israel, and having marched through the land of Zebulun and Naphtali on their way through, would then get to uh, Jerusalem. They would consume Judah to the point of only Jerusalem would be left, and they would lay siege to Jerusalem as well. And as I said to you, that prophecy was fulfilled 20 years after they had conquered Israel, when Sennacherib was laying siege to Jerusalem. So that's all in the first seven verses of Isaiah chapter 8. And as it turned out, the Assyrians were stopped only a few hundred meters short of of the walls of Jerusalem. In fact, if you go and read Isaiah chapter 10, the last eight or ten verses of Isaiah 10, is an incredible prophecy where Isaiah actually predicts the route 
that the that Sennacherib will take on his way to Jerusalem and all the towns that he will conquer. And the words that Isaiah says is that Sennacherib will get so close to Jerusalem that he will shake his fist at the men on the wall. Go and read Isaiah chapter 10. So that's how close he got. And then, of course, the angel of the Lord comes in and, and absolutely wipes out the Assyrian army in a single night. And Sennacherib goes back home with his, his tail between his legs. So Isaiah is prophesying about all these events before they take place. And now we're going to pick it up in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 8. He, now who's he? Sennacherib. Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, after having conquered the Syrians and the, and the, the northern kingdom of Israel, he will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck. That's how close he will get to defeating uh, Judah. He will reach up to the neck. And the stretching out of his wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. This is an incredible thing. What is happening here is that this God the Father, through the agency of the Holy Spirit, which is how these prophets were able to predict the future, the Holy Spirit was speaking through them. God the Father, through the agency of God the Holy Spirit, halfway through this prophecy, turns to God the Son and addresses Him. We, we see the, the Trinity actually having intercourse conversation with one another. It's an amazing thing. And the Spirit of God turns, anthropomorphically speaking, turns to God the Son, Emmanuel. And He says that this, this heathen king of Assyria, his wings will cover your land, O Emmanuel. So notice this. The Bible says that that piece of property in the Middle East that everyone's fighting over is not owned by the Jews and it's not owned by the Palestinians. That piece of land is owned by Jesus Christ. It is Emmanuel's land. And it's for that very reason that it's Emmanuel's land, that this wicked king Sennacherib is marching on Jerusalem with his wings spread out over all the land of Judah. It's for that very reason that Emmanuel himself went out into the Assyrian camp and said, who do you think you are? This is my land. And wiped out their army. Again, Isaiah is looking into the future, seeing all this before it takes place. And as he describes the impending destruction of Jerusalem... And the great hardship that is coming on the people of Israel, suddenly, as he's prophesying, this unexpected figure jumps into, into his view in the Spirit. As he's prophesying, he suddenly sees Emmanuel. And Emmanuel enters the picture, and from that moment onwards, you will see that Isaiah's tone entirely changes in his prophecy. He now turns his face boldly towards the Assyrians in his prophecy, and he begins to address the Assyrian army now. Sennacherib, who is encamped in the spirit, he's seeing this, encamped around Jerusalem, and he begins to address them. And this we see in verse 9. 
He says, be shattered, O you peoples, and be broken in pieces. He's speaking to the Assyrian army. Give ear, all you from far countries, all of those of you who, who are gathered together with this army to see the fall of God's city, Jerusalem. Gather together. He says, give ear, gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, go on, make yourselves ready for the battle, and be broken in pieces. It's not going to help you. Take counsel together, go on, make your plans. But there will be, it will come to nothing. Speak the word, go on, give the, give the instruction to attack. Speak the word, but it will not stand. For Emmanuel. I don't know what little phrase your Bible's got there. It's probably got the words, God is with us. In the Hebrew, that is the word, Emmanuel. For Emmanuel. Why is it that impossible situations can be overcome in the lives of God's people? Why is it that an enemy far too great for God's people can be defeated? Why is it that the promises of God to us, God's people, will always be fulfilled though God is in heaven? So many people believe in God, I believe God, I believe in a God, but they don't live as if He is engaged in their lives. Why is it that God can make promises to people on earth and will always fulfill those promises? Because Emmanuel. That word means God is with us. Because Jesus Christ, God's Son, the mediator between God and man, is with us. Some of you, as you sit here this morning, are facing impossible odds in your life. Some of you have got a massive problem that you don't know how you are going to overcome. Some of you feel a bit like Hezekiah looking over the walls of Jerusalem and seeing the entire Assyrian army who has wiped out the Syrians, the northern kingdom of Israel, and is now on your doorstep in Jerusalem. Some of you feel like you are there in your life. But if I can encourage you this morning... You do what Hezekiah did. You go into God's presence. You get alone. You shut your door, as Jesus said. And you lay out your problem before God. And you cry out to Him and you say, Here I am, God. I don't know what to do. But you are mighty God and you can deliver me. And He will. You will find that it will not stand for Emmanuel, God is with you. So that's verses 9 and 10 of Isaiah 8. And Isaiah's, they predicted the siege of Jerusalem and Hezekiah's deliverance. Then in verse 11, there's a change again in the prophecy. And then all the way through to the end of Isaiah chapter 8, I don't have time this morning to do a detailed thing of Isaiah chapter 8, but all the way through... What Isaiah is then prophesying about is the internal state of the people during the siege. So he turns his attention in the following verses from the heavenly and earthly dimension of what's happening here. And he turns his attention to the actual hearts of the people. What is going on in the hearts of the people of Judah as this incredible siege is taking place? 
And Isaiah basically says in the following 11 verses up to the end of chapter 8, which is up to verse 22, he basically addresses two responses to this impending destruction of Jerusalem. There were two camps of people in Jerusalem. Firstly, a few of the people, like Hezekiah himself, will trust God's word, they will trust God's promises, and they will know the presence and protection of Emmanuel. And God will be a sanctuary to them through the worst of their troubles. You know that God will be a sanctuary to you through the worst of your troubles. He will be a sanctuary to you if you will trust in Him. There will be a group of people like that, says Isaiah, in Jerusalem at this time. There will be another group, says Isaiah. Many people will try to come up with their own solutions to this problem. They will stumble at the rock of offense, which is Christ. Um, they will seek uh, mediums and wizards. They will refuse to believe God's promises. And finally, when calamity does strike them later on when the Babylonians come and wipe out Jerusalem, they will look up at God, the God that they know in their hearts. They will look up at Him and instead of repenting of their sin, says Isaiah, they will, they will uh, despise Him. They will... Uh, they will, they will be enraged at Him, is the word He uses, and they will curse God as they are carried away into darkness. What a picture of Nebuchadnezzar finally conquering Jerusalem and the wicked, evil-hearted people cursing God as they are carried into darkness. That's the other response. And it's with that thought of the eventual fall of Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar, to the Babylonians, and the hardness of the hearts of the people, it's with that thought that Isaiah closes Isaiah chapter 8. And uh, he describes those who reject the word of God and its promises. Just read verse 22 with me. Then they, the hardened people, will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness when Nebuchadnezzar finally destroys Jerusalem. Gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. Nevertheless, verse 1 of chapter 9. And here there sounds a note of mercy, a note of grace, a note of hope and of light in the midst of all this bad news. Nevertheless, yes, Jerusalem will eventually fall. It will. And the people will see gloom and they will be driven into darkness, yes. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. That's Jerusalem. The gloom will not be on Jerusalem as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, I need to stop here for a second. What Isaiah is doing by the Spirit of God as he prophesies, he is, he is contrasting what happened to the northern kingdom, which was epitomized by the land of Na uh, Zebulun and Naphtali, that region of Galilee that saw all this trouble. It was the epitome of what happened to the northern kingdom. He contrasts that with what is going to happen to Jerusalem. Now, from what I've said this morning, you should, you should already know what that contrast is. 
Though Jerusalem will fall, God will bring his people back from captivity to Jerusalem. Something he never did for the north. Now that is the contrast that is being drawn here. When he says, the gloom will not be upon Jerusalem as it was upon Zebulun and Naphtali. Um, something else that, that, um, that we need to note here. If you're reading a new, uh, a, um, a new international version, the NIV, or you're reading the ESV, or you're reading the New American Standard Bible, the NASB, I believe all three of those have misinterpreted the first verse of Isaiah chapter 9. I think the authorized version or the New King James Version have got it right. Now, I spent um, quite some time yesterday with my friend Richard, wherever Richard is in the, in the room, who's a Hebrew scholar. And Richard, thank you very much for your time yesterday. I appreciate it. We spent some time looking at that first verse of Isaiah chapter 9. And linguistically speaking, it can be translated either the way the New King James and the authorized version, the King James Version, translates it, or it can be translated the way most of your Bibles will have it if you've got an ESV. But in the context of what Isaiah is saying, it makes no sense to translate it the way the ESV translates it and the NIV translates it. So I'm going to ask you, don't look at your Bible for the first verse of Isaiah chapter 9 while I'm preaching. If you want to go home and wrestle through it, you can later. I don't want you to get distracted as I'm going through it now. I'm going to read to you what I believe is the correct interpretation of that verse. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her, Jerusalem, who is distressed, as when at first he lightly, God lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, and afterwards more heavily oppressed her. What does Isaiah say? He's saying there's going to come two levels of oppression for Zebulun and Naphtali. There will be these initial conquerings by Tiglath-Pileser, but they won't be taken captive. They'll just be conquered and humiliated. But then it'll get even worse. He will more heavily oppress her when Sennacherib eventually comes in and takes the whole northern kingdom captive. The point that Isaiah is making is that that will not be the fate of Jerusalem. He's contrasting the two. Afterward, he more heavily oppressed her by way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee of the Gentiles, it was now of the Gentiles, it was going to be of the Gentiles because the people of Israel would never be brought back there. This is unlike the conquest of Jerusalem. It's not going to be like what happened in Galilee. Verse 2, chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Who, who are these people who walked in darkness? The people of Jerusalem. Unlike the people of Zebulun and Naphtali in the region of Galilee, who never ever got to see the light of return to their land, unlike them, the people who are taken captive to Babylon from Jerusalem, will see a great light after 70 years. They've seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, in the captivity in Babylon, upon them a light has shined. Isaiah is predicting the return of Judah to Jerusalem, that a light will shine upon them. And God did that, as we've seen, for the sake of his promise to David. That that throne of David's could be maintained. Because who was going to come and sit on that throne for eternity? 
Jesus Christ. This is all so that the Messiah can come, so that you can be saved. Now what makes this prophecy so complex, and I'm going to just ask you to bear with me here. This is an incredibly complex piece of scripture. I thought I was going to be able to come and preach a really free and easy, user-friendly little devotion on Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Unfortunately, the text will not accommodate that. It is an incredibly complex piece of scripture. And what makes it even all the more complex is that Matthew, in Matthew chapter 4, he seems to take Isaiah 9 out of context. That often happens in the New Testament, by the way. I'm going to read to you Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. Speaking of Jesus, he says, And leaving Nazareth, Jesus came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It may seem to you when you first read that, that Matthew is saying that a light has dawned and shone on the people of Galilee. And we were saying, Isaiah was saying the total opposite, that the light was shining on the people of Jerusalem, unlike the people of the north who never had that light shined on them. But what Matthew does is he says, this light that shone, the fact that David's kingdom has been held up and sustained through history, means that Jesus Christ could come to His temple in Jerusalem and the light of salvation could shine and that would reach to the very outer edges of the world. That even the people of Zebulun and Naphtali, who had no hope, who were utterly conquered, who never had any return to the land, even for them, this light can shine. This is a statement on the impossibility of salvation for the world. Do you know that no matter what you have done in your life, no matter how far down you have sunk, no matter how much sin you have committed, no matter how depraved your sinful life has become, do you know that Jesus Christ can shine upon you? You can know redemption by His blood that He shed for sinners just like you. And you can know eternal life as a gift. God is the God of impossible deliverance. He is the God who shines His light of salvation on the most defeated of lands, on the most hopeless of situations. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is hope for you. Verse 3. You have multiplied the nation, says Isaiah. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of the harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Isaiah is saying when you get returned to Jerusalem after your 70 years in Babylon, there will be great rejoicing amongst the people of Judah when they return to Jerusalem. Like people dividing the spoil, like people at the harvest. And why did they rejoice? They rejoice because they know this return to Jerusalem means that God's promise to David still stands. 
There is an everlasting kingdom which we can be members of. It gives me great hope for these elections this week. This kingdom still stands, and of the increase of this kingdom there will be no end. Verse 4, For you have broken the yoke of his burden. The people of Judah, you've broken their burden that they bore in Babylon. The staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. Midian was a miraculous delivery where Gideon and 300 men, without the raising of a sword, knew the deliverance of God. And Isaiah says, the return of the people from Babylon to Judah, to Jerusalem, will be just like the days of Gideon. You will not have to fight your way out of Babylon. You won't even raise a sword. God will do it in an absolutely miraculous way. And he did that by raising up a Persian king called Cyrus, who actually paid for the people to go back. You can see how rich this text is. There's just so much in it. So why is this return of the people to Jerusalem so important? So that the throne of David could be maintained. For unto us a child is born. This Messiah, he had to be born in Israel. He had to be born into the nation of God's people who had had 2,000 years of preparation with all the sacrifices and the atoning, the day of atonement and all of that stuff that had prepared Israel to know what the Messiah would come to do, to die for the sins of his people as a sacrifice. That nation had to be preserved. That's why he got the people back to Jerusalem. For unto us a child is born. This is the reason. And unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. All authority in heaven and earth will be given to him. This human born child will be Lord of all. Is he your Lord? And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. This human-born child will be mighty God. He'll be God in human flesh. He will be Emmanuel, God with us. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David. Here, Isaiah makes it explicit. This is why God is delivering the people of Judah. So that Jesus Christ can be born, sit on David's throne for all eternity, and that the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. Hallelujah. He will sit on David's throne and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, you may ask, what does this message this morning have to do with you? First of all, it's a foolish question. The most important thing in this life is the Bible. That is God's word to man. There is not one word in the scriptures which is irrelevant, no matter how irrelevant you think it is. That's why you need to be reading your Bible from Genesis to Revelation over and over and over again. God has given every word to you that has proceeded from his mouth and it is by that word that you are to live. But if I may draw another conclusion as to why this is so important to us, all this history of Israel. Because the most important thing in your life and in your death, which is coming soon, 
is which kingdom you are a member of. There are only two kingdoms according to the scripture. There is a kingdom of Satan, which is a kingdom of darkness and gloom. And every human being born into this world because of our first father's sin, Adam, we are born members of Satan's kingdom, of the kingdom of darkness. And we live our lives as slaves of sin. And any good that we do in our lives is only because of the common grace of God. But in our hearts we rebel against this God that we know and we sin against Him throughout our lives. We are members of that darkened kingdom. And yet, the Bible says you can be brought into the kingdom of the Son of God's love through the redemption in His blood that He shed on Calvary's cross to pay for the sins of His people. To pay the price, the penalty of your sins and my sins, if you will believe. And you can be transported into this kingdom, this everlasting kingdom, where Jesus Christ sits on the throne of the heavenly Jerusalem as king forever and ever and ever. And you can become not only his citizen and servant in his kingdom, but you can be adopted as his son, because he will be everlasting father to you. There could be nothing more practical than this message to our lives today. Which kingdom are you in? Have you been reconciled to God through His Son, Jesus Christ? Have you, as Jesus said, repented of your sins? Have you turned away from a life of sin? And have you put your faith in Jesus Christ for forgiveness? If you haven't done that, you need to make that a matter of urgent priority. Be reconciled to God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to close by addressing those of you here who are believers. For those of you who do know this reconciliation with God, and you know you have peace with God through His Son, Jesus. The Bible says, in this prophecy by Isaiah, that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. God is fully invested in the suffering and salvation of His people in this world. He is fully invested in it. He's with you. God is passionately bringing all human history to its conclusion. Passionately. You think God sits aloof from your life and from your suffering. That His ears are close to your prayer. That somehow He's not moved by it. God is passionate for you, my brother, my sister. He loves you. He loves His church. He is with you in your troubles. He has His reasons. Will you trust Him? Will you trust Him? Will you trust His promises? He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And of the increase of His government and of His peace, there will be no end. He will take you home to be with Him in heaven for all eternity. And on that day, you will look back on your life and you will fall to your knees and you will say, Jesus, you were faithful to me. You were faithful. Even through the worst of it, I see now you meant it for my good. Will you trust Him? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Amen. God bless you.